it's either you want to be a medical doctor or you do not mm. want to be a medical doctor. <laughs> you either want to do all the rotations. I'm talking emergency room. I'm talking surgery. I'm talking all anatomy and physiology. And if you do not want to do that and understand and appreciate what all of medicine looks like, then medical school is not for you. But you will never hear from any of my patients that I ever recommend medication without therapy. Um, whether they decide therapy is right for them at that moment is different, but medication can only get us so far. So I want you to think of medication as kind of a, a another tool that we have in our tool belt. What is up fam? Welcome back to the channel. My name is Phil Sarpon. This is Phil's Guide to PsyD. This channel is dedicated to all things psychology, wellness, and graduate school. Today we have a very special guest. Her name is Dr. Jackie. She is a child and adolescent psychiatrist. Now, you might be wondering why I'm bringing on a psychiatrist to the channel. I think many of you have asked about different types of mental health professionals that you can get into. And I think it's so important to be able to learn and gain some wisdom and guidance about what all these other mental health professionals are doing in this field, especially because if you become a psychologist or a neuropsychologist or a mental health therapist, most likely you will interact with some of these fields or some of these professions in some way or the other. I'm gonna give a quick bio for Dr. Jackie. As I mentioned, she's a child and adolescent psychiatrist with a particular interest in behavioral regulation. Not only does she have psychiatry training, but she also has training in curriculum development as well as recruitment and retention, which actually inspired her YouTube channel. And that's actually how I found her and came across and reached out to her. So if you're looking to become a psychiatrist, her YouTube channel is a phenomenal resource to look into. I will leave down a link in the description notes below and you can check out her channel. If you're looking for more content or ways to support the channel, you can always join and become a member. Or if you're looking for just an extra way to say thank you to me for the channel and all the resources that I've provided, please do so as well. It really goes a long ways in helping me to continue making this content. Without further ado, we're gonna jump right into the interview with Dr. Jackie. All right, hey Dr. Jackie, how are you doing today? Hi, I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for the time. I'm super excited to kind of get into learning a little bit more about psychiatry and kind of what you do. For a little bit of the audience, if you mind just giving a little bit of an introduction of why psychiatry, you know, what, what got you into psychiatry in the first place? So Phil, I like this question a lot. Um, I get asked this quite frequently because growing up, I really just knew that I wanted to be a physician and there's no physician in my family or spe specifically my immediate family. I have a cousin who's a neurologist, but otherwise I really didn't have exposure to it. My mother's a nurse. And so I had some exposure to healthcare. And when I was going through medicine, I really thought I just wanted to do pediatrics. And so thank goodness we're um, forced to actually go through most of the um, standard rotations for medical school. And I was shocked to see or find out rather that 
I really, really loved psychiatry. And so I always tell everybody that psychiatry found me, honestly. And I had friends that have been going through the rotations before me and they were saying that I would love it. And I, I was really stubborn at the time and saying, I've always wanted to be a pediatrician. There's nothing that you can say or do to change my mind. But truly the only thing that was actually uh, correct about what I thought I was going to do with my future was the demographic. So I still work with children and families, um, but pediatrics was not for me. That's amazing. I love what you said about how psychiatry found you. I, I think I hear that a lot from clinicians and that sometimes there you go into something not realizing what it's going to provide or uh, to be able to kind of find that or for it to find you, I think is a really special connection. I know, um, I know a lot of people when they think about psychiatry, it's a little bit of confusing in terms of, I think most people understand that you go through med school and then there's a psychiatry residency. Can you talk a little bit about what your psychiatry residency looked like and what you did and what you learned just to give a little bit more clarity to that? So most definitely. So when you decide that you want to be a psychiatrist, it is usually during the third year that you're applying for um, for a residency. You have to do three or four years of psychiatry residency before you become an attending. And so you can be a general general psychiatrist after that. You can treat all ages. However, it is very common for people to pursue fellowships. And so you do a psychiatry fellowship and there's definitely several of them that um, are the most common. So child and adolescent psychiatry is two years. And that is, that's the situation where you would be skipping your fourth year. All of this is really under flux right now, just because of the massive need um, for our patient population. And so we're figuring out what the most efficient way of training everybody is without um, compromising on the quality of the training. So that is how it typically has been. There's different routes to getting into child psychiatry, but that's the most common one. There's also forensics um, uh, psychiatry fellowship. You could do consultation liaison psychiatry fellowship. There's geriatrics. I'm sure I'm missing a few, um, but those are very common ones just like right off the bat. And so when you're doing psychiatry residency, you're usually starting off with something like an internal medicine rotation or pediatrics if you know that you want to do child psychiatry. And then you have to do neurology. And then the rest is truly psychiatry. And you're learning what psychiatry looks like in different settings. And when I say settings, it's either inpatient where it's like the acute hospitalization setting. There's also another level of care that's called partial hospitalization and usually like kind of similar but different is intensive outpatient. Um, and then there's outpatient. There's obviously the emergency room and that kind of looks very different from institution to institution or location. And then you're kind of going through all of these experiences, depending on your program setting, or your program setup. And uh, you have to meet all of these requirements or have a certain number or out amount of hours um, in a certain rotation before you're able to graduate from residency. Wow. So it sounds like it sounds like a lot, but it sounds uh, it sounds so important and I think so valuable. Right. Uh, I think it's great when there are so many different specialties. And so even for a prospective student, you can kind of niche into what your focus or what you where your interests are and then kind of get into it from there. What is your day to day look like now currently in terms of your patient population and kind of what you're what you're doing in from a week to week basis? Mm -hmm. So. I think if you were to rewind and ask 
Dr. Jackie a few years ago what my life would look like now, I would have no idea um, that I'd end up doing all the things that I'm doing. What's nice about psychiatry, especially in academic medicine, is that you can really have uh, unique expertise, sub-expertise. Uh, I love teaching. That's why I stayed in academia. I love helping decide how we're training the future of psychiatry, making sure that we're doing it to fidelity. I tend to be kind of a perfectionist when it comes to that. I also really love inspiring people in the way that my own mentors have done. And you really don't know what your options are unless there's somebody looking out for you and getting to know you and being like, I think you'd be really good at this. And so that's been something that I've been really like grateful for and something that for sure people don't always have. So I know that that was like a very privileged thing for me. And so up until probably the second or third year of residency, I was pretty lost. I had no idea how to get into psychiatry residency. I was really just trying. Like I was just, you know, walking through any door that would open, but there was definitely not somebody that was holding my hand through it. Um, and so it, even though kind of cheesy, I just really want to be that person for other people because it doesn't have to be that difficult and it doesn't have to be that lonely and isolating. Um, so when I got to second or third year, I found my mentor and it's been like a wild ride since then. I felt such significantly more confidence. And I think when somebody who knows what they're doing and is um, really like a behemoth in their field is investing in you, obviously it gives you some um, conf some more confidence that you probably didn't have before. And the gentle nudge and sometimes not so gentle invitation to be like, I think you should consider doing this project or this research um, or do this committee or meeting and uh, putting yourself um, in those situations where you're uncomfortable and not really sure why you're even there is uh, really important. It, those those tiny moments add up, even though they feel like they're, they're so easy to avoid because they can be scary and intimidating. And so... I think like where you really want to make sure that you are making the most of it is trying to figure out what um, what really lights you up and what makes you excited to actually look things up. And so um, there's so many things in psychiatry that you can focus on, so many settings that you can work in. Um, I tend to be more of an eclectic person. I like outpatient. I love longitudinal care, which means that you follow your patient through years. Like at this point now, I have families that I've worked with for five or six years, which is amazing. Like I've seen them into high school and got them into college, right? Like it, it's just been amazing to see them grow and especially kids um, yeah. and just morph um, so much and they evolve so much and their families evolve so much just within a few months, let alone like over a course of several years. Um, so it's like a incomparable experience, right? Like there's, there's um, no other setting where you can have that. Um, and to me, that's a luxury. So you, I, that was really valuable to me. I love therapy. I'm psychotherapeutically minded and I wanted to have a setting where I could do that. I also very much uh, love working with parents and, you know, I think making sure that when you're a child psychiatrist, making sure that you are increasing communication, um, and improving trust in a family system is the is really the crux of everything that you do. Like you hope that they wouldn't need you forever, and you hope that um, you're not like the most important important person in that family system. But for sure, you're going to feel this like pull to 
to fix whatever is you perceive is going on, but that's, you know, a very, um, that's a very tricky place to, to, for your mind to go. Um, and really you want to empower families to be able to heal themselves, which is, I believe the whole point of what we do. So I do that. And I also, um, work in the emergency room. And, uh, recently I've also added a, an, an informatics, uh, role in my um, outpatient world where I get to work with uh, clinicians to navigate the electronic medical records uh, a little bit more uh, efficiently because a lot of our work in medicine has in healthcare has really kind of uh, become uh, what's the word that I'm looking for Phil it's 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 really impossible basically to do your job without being able to navigate the electronic health records yeah yeah, I, I I hear that a lot. And it's it's one of those things too, where I'm sure like even for me in graduate school, it's not something that we take a class learning about informatics and patient health records and navigating those different systems. It's kind of like, once you go into your clinical experiences, you're just thrown into it and you're just mm -hmm. expected to kind of figure it out as you go. But those are really important things to know. <laughs> yes. And so yeah, that's amazing that you get to do that. Mm -hmm. I'm hearing a, a lot of diverse experiences that you have so far. I, po I apologize for cutting you off. I, I, oh, yeah. I realize I forgot a very big portion of my job. Um, yeah. is I, there's a, two other roles that I also have. Um, I run in a, um, I run a clinic where all of the first year child psychiatry fellows kind of function as a problem-based learning experience, but they actually observe directly um, how the other uh, colleagues are doing their appointments. And so there is a group learning situation there. And a, it's really important to make sure that you're creating this kind of psychological safety uh, focused environment so that it is patient centered, but also really maximizing their learning by not just learning from directly from their own pa assigned patients, but also through all of their colleagues di um, directly assigned patients. And so even though maybe they carry what would look like very few patients um, intimately, like if there's there's just only a few assigned to them specifically that they carry throughout the entire year, um, they're learning about all of their colleagues' um, patients and how to diagnose and treat properly. And then again, like all the informatics around that, but it's it's definitely a team there. The other role that I also have is um, associate medical director. I, I'm really passionate about kids that are diagnosed with what we are currently calling externalizing disorders. This, these are um, symptoms that manifest outwardly. So essentially we have kiddos that will, you know, take in symptoms and so they they might have a lot of inner thoughts going on and maybe we might harm ourselves or have suicidal thoughts um, and and it's not like these two don't overlap or interplay um, they definitely do but there are kiddos that also struggle with aggression or what we call outbursts and so like that is something that I'm really passionate about because I think it is um, difficult to have this one level of safety um, confidence and, you know, clinician confidence is really important and being able to obviously feel safe, but right. it's really an important experience to make sure that we are being exposed to that and trainees are exposed to that so that they know that obviously these families and kiddos are also suffering just in a different way. Um, 
and that they feel confident upon graduation that we'd be able to help them. Because that's, you know, it, we have to make sure that we're able to help everyone. That's incredible. That's incredible. I, I heard back just so many diverse experiences that you are doing and that you're engaged in. And it, it makes me think about psychiatry as I think a lot of people have these misconceptions and these myths about what psychiatrists actually do or what they focus on. Can you talk a little bit about what those misconceptions are in terms of what psychiatrists uh, are not or like what they don't really focus on and maybe talk a little bit to those misconceptions? Mm-hmm. Oh, the list is long, Phil, so I'm going <laughs> to to choose my favorite ones. Um, I think we physicians are generally a pretty misunderstood group of people. I think it is quite impossible to be so idolized as a as a career while also being held accountable in the way that they want us to be. Um, most of the things that we struggle with are because of insurance companies and trying to get our patients what we are advocating that they need and they deserve, um, but can't always get. Um, and in this country, it's very, very difficult. I can only speak about this country, and I know it's difficult um, internationally. So if it's this difficult in a country like America, then I can't imagine what it's like in other countries. Um, I think there are pros and cons to everything. But when you become a physician, being able to navigate and have a team um, uh, that's interdisciplinary that will help you navigate and help your families navigate this really complex mental health system will make you more effective. And I'd argue that I actually do not know how you can be effective without multiple people uh, making sure that they're scaffolding at all the levels logistically, just because Mm -hmm. you go to, you go into medicine thinking that you're going to do the evaluations and the diagnostics and treatments. The majority of what we do is trying to hunt down um, a medication that's out of stock. And that's been a very difficult thing in the past several years, especially with um, things like stimulants. Um, trying to get our patients medications that they cannot afford and insurance is saying that they cannot get. Um, Navigating diagnoses that insurances won't reimburse. Um, And so there's a lot of these complicated factors on top of just it already being at baseline fundamentally so complex and so difficult for so many families out there. So that that um, like level of moral injury can rub off on physicians. And so you might see physicians kind of be thought of as like cold hearted, they don't care. I think there's a lot of burnout that just systematically happens. It's, it's no one's fault necessarily, but it's definitely a system that is created to um, make physicians feel like they're, they can't be effective. And so like, really making sure that we're advocating as a team, as a group, interdisciplinarily, um, that there, there's, no, there's, there's not going to be a lack of um, need. The, the need is just growing exponentially and we'll never be able to meet the need uh, that of our population. Um, and like, if you stop and think about that as a clinician, I think it can be paralyzing. So I think the first misconception is often that like doctors are just doing this for the money. I don't think they're, you know, doing what I do. I don't think there's an amount of money that would be worth it to me if I wasn't passionate, passionate, committed, and completely obsessed with like trying to make sure that we treat 
these children and families that struggle with mental health conditions to the best way that we can. Um, because there's just, it, you would be so quick to burn out if you didn't truly care. Um, and the money is, is not, is not enough. So there's that <laughs> too. I think it's, there's been a lot more education on um, the amount of loans that we have to take on in order to do this. So just the fact that you are able even to take out the massive amount of loans is already a privilege in itself um, to be able to go to school, um, to continue and not have to um, skip fellowship, even if you want to do fellowship so that you can start making and attending salary. Um, all of those things are really difficult. So people who don't necessarily um, pursue additional training, it might not have been because they're lazy or they, they didn't want to learn or be an expert expert. Um, it was just that financially, it was just an impossible thing to do um, on top of probably the um, immense amount of loans that they probably already had to take on just to do that. Um, there's also like the concept of having uh, like delayed gratification and generally like your entire personal life. So being able to like have a family, um, buy a house, like settle down, a lot of training involves like moving around. Um, in medical school, you're going from one rotation in a hospital institution to the next, and then you don't really know up until you match where you're going to be. And so a lot of your uh, long, longer term uh, commitments or uh, goals for your personal life are really put on a hold because you don't really know where, where you're actually going to be. Um, and then when you graduate, you want to find an attending physician job that you are going to see yourself in and that you could build your career in, but that doesn't always pan out. So it could be quite in flux in terms of like where you're even going to be. So you can imagine that's like extremely destabilizing for a person in general. And then let alone if there's also uh, a partner there and children there. Um, or other friends and family involved, um, which generally there are. So that's that's something to consider when we're looking at physicians that um, are usually working very early in the morning to pretty late at night um, and covering many settings and shifts. And so that's, that's something that's difficult. I think other people also think that we enjoy diagnosing and labeling um, people and that we enjoy putting or we just don't care? I don't know. But I, this is a really great question because I do wonder what other people think because I don't think this way. Um, but I'm sure people assume or think that we are quick to diagnose and then we're also quick to um, throw around medication. If anything, like I see, I see our job as actually um, really important to clarify diagnoses, remove incorrect, inaccurate diagnoses, making sure there isn't polypharmacy because there's more and more evidence out there how um, how inappropriate and how frequent that actually is happening. Um, and, you know, the kids that and families that are struggling with this the most are the ones that are under-resourced. And so there's inherent stigma there already. Um, so I don't know. Those are just some of the few that I can think of, Bill. Some of the things that we also experience too, whether it's insurance or the labeling and the diagnosing, or the burnout, the emotional burnout, emotional compassion fatigue, all of those different things. And I think that's why it's so important, especially for prospective students who are looking to go into the mental health profession to be able to look at the pros and cons and, and really try and shadow as many clinicians as you can and get as many perspectives as you can. Uh, because yeah, it really does make a difference. I will say, I emphasize to 
any person that's um, shadowing anyone or having that rotation experience with a team that I do not want you to make your career decision based off of one or two experiences because your entire experience is going to be totally flavored by the person that you've been assigned to shadow and what kind of day they're having <laughs> and um, also the patients that you're seeing and how much support they're getting, right? There's so many factors in how that day goes and what your shadowing experience is like. There's another thing that is really important is that physicians are also not taught how to teach. And there are so many people that are amazing teachers in medicine. And usually they had a natural inclination. They might have teachers, they might have been teachers prior to pursuing medicine, as well as just doing a lot of extra work and learning to supplement their medical degree so that they can be solid teachers and supervisors in um, clinical medicine. So it's just uh, things to consider when you're um, experiencing and shadowing that it's not it's not a cookie cutter experience. And just because you have maybe not the best experience shadowing during a rotation um, doesn't mean that you should make that make a make the decision to not pursue it. Um, I think it's important to decide whether you like the patient population. And that is the most important thing. Um, if you like working with people who struggle with mental health conditions, then we have to decide what kind of role and how, how you want to make a difference in the mental health field, but it doesn't mean that mental health field is not for you. Yeah, I, I think that's so important. And I'm so glad you, you mentioned that. And I think, uh, you know, I'd love to know, even if there's more things that you can think about in terms of a student who is wanting to go into the mental health profession, and maybe they're not sure about psychiatry, but they might be looking at clinical psychology or social work. When I ever, whenever I talk about mental health to people who aren't in the mental health field, it's always really confusing for them because they're like, wow, what are all these labels and LCSW and MSW and licensed mental health, you know, professional mm -hmm. mental health mental educator. Health. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and, and it's like, you know, for someone who's looking in to get to the mental health field, how do you, how do you navigate all of those different variables? Mm, that's a really good question. How do you navigate all these variables? I think, so specifically, let me let me address if you want to pursue psychiatry specifically. Mm -hmm. I think that one is the easiest for me to answer is that it's either you want to be a medical doctor or you do not mm -hmm. want to be a medical doctor. <laughs> you either want to do all the rotations. I'm talking emergency room. I'm talking surgery. I'm talking all anatomy and physiology. And if you do not want to do that and understand and appreciate what all of medicine looks like, then medical school is not for you because you cannot just present yourself and go um, in there and say, I only want to do psychiatry. This is what I want to do. And I'm not interested in anything else. You will still have to do all the other rotations. So if the medication aspect of it is not feeling that important and you're really passionate about therapy and you can see yourself doing therapy for the rest of your life, right? Nothing's etched in stone, but say you can, you can envision that then I would suggest not necessarily pursuing medical school or feeling like that's your only option to do something in psychiatry. There's also nurse practitioner school. So you can become a nurse and then you could be a nurse practitioner and um, work with 
psychiatrists and collaborate in that way. And I work with amazing nurse practitioners um, every day. So that's another option if medicine is something that's important, but medical school is not necessarily something, a, a goal of yours. Um, LCSWs, LMFTs. Um, so those are marriage family therapists, licensed clinical social workers. They definitely all, and it's really important to have different lenses. And I won't speak to psychology because you have Phil already, but like um, social work is looking at the kind of like the ecosystem and they have different frameworks of understanding like a child and a family and the society that we're living in and um, like in the public arena and, and how we navigate policy, like those things are really important to social workers. But then when you pursue a clinical social work um, role, then you can do direct therapy and it could be an eclectic style. It could be something that you really, really specifically want to implement. And there are just a long list of types of therapies. And so you could pursue something like that. And um, marriage and family therapists definitely also have a role in mental health, in the mental health space working with a little bit more of the family systems approach. And so again, like it's just trying to figure out what you, what you um, get really excited about and what you're passionate about and what you can see yourself really feeling like there's no amount of this that I can really like um, get sick of. Honestly, we, we want to make sure that there's work-life balance, of course, but something that you're really excited about. So, you know, it never, there's never any judgment from me when a trainee is coming through and saying, I'm really passionate about um, working with uh, kids that struggle with self-harm. Um, I love DBT. And so we want to cater our training and our exposures to something like that. And maybe that's like the niche that you decide to pursue. And so all of these other roles um, and disciplines can definitely do something like that. But I'll let Phil like expand on that. Um, there's a little there's a little to a lot of exposure to research or the emphasis of research in your actual daily life, depending on what role you also decide. So if research is something that you feel like is also really exciting to you, then I would definitely factor that into your decision making when you're choosing which discipline you want to pursue. That was really good. That was very, very concise. I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think, yeah, to even add in the clinical psychology piece, I think one of the things that I've really enjoyed about it is this whole aspect of psychiatric testing and uh, just for whether it's personality disorders or uh, whether it is more in-depth testing for like ADHD or dementia and uh, report writing, uh, which comes along with that as well. I think that's an aspect of clinical psychology that has been such a unique aspect to learn. And you mentioned a lot of different, you know, some, some med medical professionals too that you work with, including nurse practitioners. I think I've been able to be exposed to a lot of mental health professionals and medical professionals in my field as well. And, and it's just been great to be able to collaborate with these medical professionals in a way that is really conducive and beneficial for the, for the health of the patient. How does your collaboration look like with these nurse practitioners or even other mental health professionals in your day-to-day -day work life? Mm -hmm. So in an ideal system, I would be 
managing medications and doing those follow-ups longitudinally with my patients. And then we would have a therapist that would be what I was um, recommending based off of what's going on with the patient. And so we're constantly kind of like going back and forth about what would be best, how we're understanding the patient and the family, what do they need right now, what supports can we give realistically. And then there's also the team that I you know, realize that I completely left out is the case management team and the nursing team that's separate from the nurse practitioner team. And that, again, like referrals and um, navigating insurance and uh, knocking on the pharmacy doors to figure out what medication we can reasonably get for our patients. Those are things that like we are so necessary. So I'm constantly talking to all disciplines, I feel like, and being in an academic institution, which is really nice, my mind just really prioritizes peer supervision um, and making sure that we are thinking, thinking really comprehensively about all our patients and not just thinking about them in the lens that we've been trained to think about them. So of course, like I'm always thinking about like the medical aspect of things and the medication and what can I do? And am I missing like some kind of uh, eco, like with the environmental aspect of things or what's going on at school and what resources we can provide there or what's going on in the home in terms of whether we need to have a therapy team in there. So, you know, I've learned so much from working with other disciplines and it's just, it makes you a better doctor for sure. There's just no, nothing like it. When I was going through my rotations, that was just the best part. I did not see that replicated in any other um, morning rounds was me sitting there next to a psychologist, next to a teacher, next to the social worker, next to another social worker, next to another psychiatrist. Um, you can't, I, I just, I, I just feel like you cannot see that anywhere else to the level of sitting down thinking about a kid and approaching them uh, from all angles. And I'm sure there's angles that we, we miss, um, but the fact that we were just thinking about them so comprehensively without, um, and holistically without necessarily just saying, oh, it's the, it's, it's just, it's just here, we can go up on this medication, five milligrams and send them on their merry way. Um, this, this might happen, but it shouldn't be happening this way. Um, and any pressures that kind of result in something like that is usually a reflection of a stress system. So we really want to make sure that we're, again, like taking care of ourselves and, and as an individual. And so I can show up for my patients and families, but also my entire team in a way that is uh, actually in a solutions focused way and a kind and compassionate, but also firm way. Um, but also making sure that we're taking care of each other. Um, when when something stressful happens or if there has been um, a patient event that was um, stressful or there were just we're just having a rough week like I think I think making sure that we're all recognizing that we're all human too and we all have different needs and we all have like personal lives is just so so important there's different laws in the country um, for direct billing for nurse practitioners. Sometimes they can direct bill. Some um, in certain institutions they are on they are unable to direct bill at this time, and so navigating those kinds of things too. And when I say billing, there is a that is the charge that we have to submit to the insurance company so that we, as an institution, are able to get um, reimbursed from the insurance company because that's essentially how our um, our healthcare system has been set up. So we do we do 
a service and we then um, submit to that person's insurance company whether or not they're going to give us money for that service. Yeah, that was really that was really comprehensive. And I I love that you mentioned the collaboration piece. I think for me that is a personal just amazing opportunity that I've had because I actually also right now I'm currently in academic medical center. And so I do work with social workers and nurses and nurse practitioners and psychiatrists. And so I, I think that collaboration piece is just so beneficial. And I'm, I've loved about it because it's great to just learn from other professions in terms of what they do. And I think when I think about just medically, psychologically, socially, like that comprehensive, holistic part of a person, when you're able to kind of engage in all those different parts, I just feel like there's so much benefit to their, to their mental health. And so it's, it's really cool to kind of hear you talk about that and kind of the system that you're in. I am also wondering, like in a, a lot of the questions that I get sometimes from students is sort of the, the conversations around medication and therapy when it comes to mm -hmm. patients coming in for, for the clinic. And how it, it really just kind of depends on their circumstances. It depends on their medical history. But I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you think about that from kind of like a case conceptualization perspective on mm -hmm. medication versus therapy versus mm -hmm. a combination of both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I really struggle because I keep on getting this question, but you will never hear from any of my patients that I ever recommend medication without therapy. Um, whether they decide therapy is right for them at that moment is different, but medication can only get us so far. So I want you to think of medication as kind of a, a another tool that we have in our tool belt. If you are a psychiatrist, and again, this is my personal opinion as is everything that we're talking about and that I'm sharing, but if, medication is the only tool you have in your tool belt, you will be um, very short of being able to help most of your patients, if not all of them. And so you want to make sure that you're able to implement some type of therapy. And it doesn't necessarily mean what I think people have in their heads about what therapy looks like. And it is, you know, a solid hour of talking about your week. And this, this is why we need exposure as psychiatrists to an eclectic um, type of therapy approach because you can sprinkle different um, skills here and there, coping mechanisms, also challenge um, intrusive thoughts, um, do little exposures here and there, really depending on understanding your patient and knowing, meeting them where they're at and also knowing what they're able to do. So, and also parent, parent effectiveness training, right? So like helping parents navigate um, being a parent for a kid that has a diagnosis, there, this is, um, of course, this is difficult, right? Like typical parenting is not going to necessarily do the trick and your kid might need more or something different. And that does not mean that you're a bad parent by any means. It's, it means that you need guidance and support. And this is just like a general application to everybody. So where we want to kind of think of medication is to support the therapy if we try therapy for like a mild or moderate condition because it's not necessarily unsafe, it's not necessarily acute, um, and you don't need rapid stabilization because we are um, in a crisis right now, then 
let's try therapy. Let's try it. And if we are really trying, and of course your patient is in severe distress, then maybe discussing how medication might help move therapy skills along and progress. There's nothing is more, um, I think, disabling, uh, frustrating for a patient if they're truly trying to implement all of the techniques that you're teaching in therapy and they just cannot because their symptoms are so overwhelming or so severe. And it's, it's, uh, it's definitely a stigma to say that they are not trying hard enough or they're just weak. Or we, we, these are very old school things that I really pr appreciate would be left in the past. It does not help anyone um, in this entire world to be so judgmental of ourselves and other people. So we just, if there is a something that is helpful, that could be helpful, then it's my job to offer it. And no one is forced to take this medication in an outpatient setting. But of course, if there is an acute crisis and somebody is unsafe, unstable, then medication might become uh, something that is necessary or mandated by law. But, med but doctors do not become involved in that. Um, we can say you must be hospitalized and we have to monitor you. But in, in terms of forcing medications, usually a judge has to be involved. So, so that's very difficult. Um, the other thing about medication is that there are a lot of conditions in mental health that do require something that is chronic or long-term in order to maintain stability. And so if that is something that you're struggling with or your patient is struggling with, you really want to make sure that you are not um, explaining to them that medication is, that's it. We just take it every day. We want to make sure that we are also understanding how the medication is impacting um, our like self-identity or how we are developing this narrative around um, taking medication or even our diagnosis in itself. So we really want to make sure that this is something that is very clear. Also, if there is a, an event, what we know right now neurologically is that the longer that that event persists, the harder it's going to be, uh, it's, the harder it's going to be to treat it. And so we want to make sure that the second that we know that the diagnosis and that they have the resources and they have the physician to be able to help them, then if it's going to be helpful and we take it and it actually shortens the episode, then that does less damage longitudinally for this person. Um, it also makes them less likely to experience a similar episode in the future. What we unfortunately know is that the amount of years that it takes for a person to finally get into a child psychiatrist or psychiatrist um, is very long. And so that is a rate limiting step for sure to just get the proper diagnosis and also getting somebody competent enough to treat whatever is going on. And so we do rely, unfortunately, on primary care physicians and emergency rooms and all of these kind of settings that if in an ideal system, people wouldn't have to wait that long or also be able to um, not go through those experiences or also rely on people that nece didn't necessarily go to the additional training, even though they want to help, might not feel skilled enough to help in this acute psychiatric crisis, right? So I want you to always think of medicine and therapy as a combination. And every, every study has shown that a combination of medication and therapy is the most effective. That's very, that's so true. And I'm so glad that you, you bring up that research because it's, it's something that I've really enjoyed delving into as well. Uh, some of the, 
some of the cool things about therapy, I think, is that initially, even at the after the first session, a patient can just have a little bit of a, a sliver of hope, like more hope than they had when they initially came in. And even though it actually does take a couple of weeks, a couple of sessions to really get into reducing that type of emotional distress or mm-hmm. symptomology, it the long-term effects are really, really beneficial. And, and therapy yeah. is not about breakthroughs. They're, it's not, it's like these slow, steady, sustainable changes to your life that yeah. help your patients find a voice. And, yeah. you know, in, 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 and sad as it is, it's very true that you as the therapist might be the first and only person that um, that person feels validated by, heard by, and seen. It, it's so true. I, you know, one of the things when you were talking, it made me think of just in general, this aspect of just the field in general. And I, I know you mentioned a little bit about some of the things that can be kind of frustrating, whether it's insurance providers or trying to get more access to health care for marginalized populations or people that just may not be able to get those services met. What what are maybe what's one other thing that maybe frustrates you about the field and what is one hope or one thing that you do look forward to in terms of maybe where the field is heading in terms of the trajectory of what it could provide for patients so this is not about psychiatry or the career i guess i, I don't know it's the I, I think it's a global thing that all all of medicine is experiencing um but the the push to minimize our ability to spend time with our patients, I think is my, my biggest worry about where medicine as a whole is going. Um, when, when money becomes the driving factor, and this is also mm, very complicated and complex, right? Because we, we don't want hospitals to necessarily close because that's a problem too. And so they have to be able to make money and sustain themselves. But when money becomes a driving force and costs for healthcare are so high, um, being a psychiatrist and being the physician on the team means that the more patients I see, the more money I could potentially make for the institution. And so the driver would be, therefore, to decrease the amount of um, time I spend with patients so that I can squeeze in more patients. And I just don't know how that is going to eventually play out. I just do not think that we are able to do our job correctly with 10-minute appointments. And surely these exist out there um, with increasing frequency. And so that's my biggest frustration no, none of us decided this. This is not something that the psychiatrists are saying as a as a field that is a good idea. Um, I don't think that any quality measure would say that this is a good idea. And yet it seems to be something that continues to happen. And I think the pro obviously is that we're getting more help out there. I just worry about the quality of that help that. And I do think that psychiatrists then, and especially the younger psychiatrists are feeling like that's all they can or do or or were trained to be. And uh, I think I worry about that um, for everybody. And then the second thing about that is that I don't, I don't want people thinking that they don't need therapy skills, because even in those 10, 15 minutes, there's a lot 
that happens between a patient and uh, the physician or the clinician that would require therapeutic interventions. And so even in the smallest amount of time, um, you can make a very big impact, even if you're just a blip on that person's radar and they only come to one session and never you never see them again. Like that, I want you to, at least my supervisor used to tell me that, you know, Jackie, you're, the, you're just one stop on this like long journey that this patient has. And so, you know, I, he would always say, you're overvaluing yourself. You're, you're overthinking what you're about to say. And the, the confidence has grown. He used to tell me because I'd ask like, when am I going to start feeling confident, confident or competent in this job? And he was like 30 years, which I know he, what he meant was that this is going to be a lifelong growing opportunity for me. But um, luckily the confidence and the has grown and the anxiety has decreased about how um, important what I was saying during um, sessions was and that the patient has a mind of their own, obviously, and that they weren't going to be scarred or, guided in any certain direction just simply because I said something. Um, but you, obviously, we want to make sure that we use our discretion and um, meet meet the patient and family where they're at while also being as honest as possible. I mean, we just really want to be a resource for families and they, they will, in the end, make their own decision because uh, they are people and you can't, you can't control anyone. You want to actually make sure that they feel like they have the most self-control um, and a voice really so that's the important part so what i'm really excited about in the future is making sure that we are incorporating as much technology as possible so i think i've been trying to communicate that I'm, i like to be kind of techie i like what technology can accomplish in medicine and we can really help a lot more people if we can incorporate a little bit more of what technology has to offer so that we're doing less redundant tasks and uh, focusing on like the person that's in front of us. So that's exciting. Um, telehealth is something that has also expanded. So we just want to make sure like everything that's new and innovative, we just want to make sure that we are monitoring and putting standard standards in place. Um, but usually all of these things come later after the implementation implementation of certain things. And so it's just uh, growing pains, but I think it's worth it's worth it to explore. That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, uh, Dr. Jackie, you know, one of the things you mentioned that it really took me back to this idea of just like systems and institutions and policies around, you know, what we as mental health professions can can do uh, for patients. And the part that you mentioned about how getting 10, 15 minutes of time with patients Mm -hmm. times just cannot be enough but no. being able to yeah have a system or a model and I think this is where I've seen a lot of psychologists kind of go into sort of the primary care aspect of hospital models and kind of provide a little bit more of space for patients who are going through just different levels of anxiety or depression uh, to be able to meet them where they're at even in that in that location in that spot Mm -hmm. and collaborate with the medical provider. And I've also seen some models where a lot of mental health professionals are also helping physicians on bedside manner. You know, one of the things that you mentioned about how being able to have the skills, uh, even as a psychiatrist of therapy skills, even if you might be doing mostly medication management, being able to have those skills, because five minutes of reflective listening or active listening or 
you know, summarizing that patient's statement or being able to meet them emotionally where they're at can really make a difference. Even if you only, ha only have five, 10 minutes, can be such a, a crucial aspect for their overall healthcare. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think those things that you mentioned and the technology piece too, I think is going to be something that's really exciting to see kind of how it unfolds and how it overlaps with a lot of the patient healthcare systems. And so, okay. yeah, thank you so much for that. I know, you know, I, I have one more question. This is a question mm -hmm. I typically ask all my guests, but you do so much for your patients. You do so much just in general in your day-to-day tasks and activities how do you give back to yourself what are some of the things that you give back to your own mental health or spiritual or physical health uh -huh. phil i love this question i think ever since i was in medical school it became very apparent to me that if i didn't carve out time for myself i was never going to continue to pursue something that i said i was going to pursue since i was really young and so I'm, I am what you call a hobby hoarder for sure. Uh, I like trying new things. I like going on adventures. I love traveling like that just lights um, my, just my entire world up, right? And I think just learning how other people uh, walk through the world and experience the world was a natural translation into what I decided to do for a living. And I really had no idea that this was even a career path um, because I definitely grew up in a um, family that mental health wasn't necessarily something that you discussed. I, I'm from a culture that didn't talk about psychiatry or mental health. And when I realized that it was something that I could do for a living on every other rotation, it was simply what I I just wanted to talk and get to know the person that was in front of me and the algorithm for everything else was going to take care of itself. But like having that conversation and connecting on that like direct human level is just, just irreplaceable. So I love, I actually, like, I, I think my work actually fills me up a lot. And I think it's um, unfortunate that you know, it makes me sad that there are a lot of people that might not necessarily feel so passionate about their job. And it's, it's definitely a privilege that I love my job so much that I'm just like kind of geeking out about it all the time and just really love it. Um, so, and I found a lot of people that also love it so much. So that's just yeah. been awesome. So really get, hanging out with the people that I work with and, and um, being very close. I'm very, again, very grateful that I have friends and family in the area who uh, a lot of my friends are obviously in medicine, not necessarily psychiatry, um, but a lot of them are pediatricians. And so, you know, we, we bond over that. We talk about those things, but like at the at the forefront of our friendship was never medicine. It was just us as people. And we just so happened to be doctors. Um, and I always thought that was really important that I remind everybody that's going through medical training that they were definitely humans and that they existed prior to medical school. Um, yeah. And that it is it, by making sure that you know who you are and you stay, stay true to who you are and take care of all the things outside of medicine that are components of your life. Um, the better doctor you'll be um, and the better that you'll show up for yourself and everybody else around you. So I love arts and crafts. I'm not as great of a sewer as my mom, but we like, I grew up in the arts and crafts um, stores. I am a huge gardener. So if there's a plant child looking for a home, like I will most definitely adopt them. Um, 
I love techie things. So like, that's why, you know, when, when at the height of COVID, I was like, I think I don't have an excuse anymore. Um, I had been thinking about starting that YouTube and being that face. And there was many opportunities to not put my face out there. And I just thought it was really important that people see what I look like because I did not have somebody when I was going through training that looked like me that did what I did or do that does what I do. Um, and uh, since then, I've been able to find that per- those many people like that. But it, you know, it, it can feel like maybe I shouldn't pursue this because it seems like I don't fit the outward mold of what a psychiatrist should should look like. Um, so you know, I, I haven't posted in a while, and I I sorely miss it. So it was very exciting for Phil you to actually like, reach out to me to like film this. I really really miss it. Um, but honestly, I'm just down for food, anything else, honestly, just experiencing life, like, um, and you should do something uncomfortable and kind of weird, like as often as possible. Um, and you should just do something that like lights you up. So I just, I just have like this passion for life. And I think that translates into like the people I work with to make sure that work is not everything, but also like everything outside of work is applicable to my actual work as well. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I, I, I think it's just so important to be able to find those passions outside of our work, but also to be able to find the passion even within the work too. And the I love that you spoke about the social community that you have and all of the different things that you do outside of your work. And uh, I think it's just great. I, I, I'm so happy that I was able to connect with you because I also, my YouTube channel during the pandemic, was a little intimidated, you know, in terms of putting myself out there, but I have really loved just going through your YouTube channel. And, and that is definitely something that I'll, I'll put in the show notes in terms of for people to check out in terms of learning more about psychiatry, what it looks like, what people are doing. And uh, I think you really give a, a really strong voice uh, to that representation of, yeah, it is, psychiatry is not as cookie cutter as people think. It, it's actually much more expansive and uh, culturally diverse and rich experiences that people can really engage in. And so I think it's just so important for people to know about that. And so thank you so much, Dr. Jackie, for being here and for yeah, sharing your time with us. Uh, it was just a really great conversation. So thank you so much again. Oh, so happy that you reached out to me, Phil. So hopefully we'll do another one of these maybe in the future. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> We'd ha- love to have you back. <laughs>